Well, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. This is the fourth sermon in our series from Matthew's gospel. And as always, part of what we want to ask is, what's Matthew's purpose in the text under consideration? That is, by the end of this section of Matthew, what is it that Matthew wants us to understand about Jesus? At one level, verses 13 to 23 of of Matthew chapter 2 focus on geography or on messianic topography, I guess you could say. It's all about where Jesus is. Last week, the Magi raised the question, where is the born king of the Jews? Herod echoed by asking the Jewish religious leaders, where is the Christ to be born? The answer was that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus met that requirement. But now in our text this afternoon, we follow along as Jesus goes on a journey, a journey from Judea, where Bethlehem is, to Egypt, back to the land of Israel, and then on to Nazareth in Galilee. And it's there where our text ends, with Jesus returning, but not to Bethlehem. Verse 23 reads, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. I think it's significant that that's the end goal of this text. Because if you've ever read the Gospels before, you know that this poses a problem. Being from Nazareth was not exactly what most people in Israel would have thought of as a messianic qualification. In fact, quite the opposite. In general, it would have been seen as a messianic disqualification. Nazareth was a, a rural backwater, a despised place, in popular opinion that has, as far as we know, no other historical significance before this time. It was an obscure Jewish village in the Galilean hills. For someone to be called a Nazarene, especially in connection with a messianic claim, was to invite ridicule. As one commentator puts it, the name is in itself a term of dismissal, if not of actual abuse. When Christians in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, are referred to as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt. To the reader of Matthew's gospel, the problem is apparent. How is Jesus really the Messiah if he's called a Nazarene? That very problem is voiced explicitly in John's gospel, as you may know, in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael's response to the suggestion that a Messiah could come from Nazareth reflected the popular opinion of the day. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He asked incredulously. Later in John 7, verses 41 and 42, the crowds inquire skeptically, asking, 
is the Christ, the Messiah, to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, did you hear that? Has not the scripture said, the crowds ask in John chapter 7, this is Matthew's challenge. And that's why, as I read it, the whole argument of Matthew chapter 2 is arranged to demonstrate something which to the first century reader would have been absolutely incredible. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah from Bethlehem. Which is why the way Matthew gets us there isn't just to state it. He wants to prove it, to show that every step of Jesus' journey from Judea to Egypt and ultimately to Nazareth was guided by God in fulfillment of Holy Scripture. Verses 13 to 23 of this passage divide into three rather obvious sections. I think the ESV, in fact, has headings for those different sections. And you've probably already noted that each of these three sections ends with Matthew's explanation that the events that were described in them have fulfilled a prophetic word. So in verses 13 to 15, we read about how the Holy Family flees to Egypt as Matthew then points our attention to how Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures, initiates the new exodus of the new covenant. We'll talk about that. And in verses 16 to 18, we read about Herod's slaughter in Bethlehem as Matthew points our attention to how Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures, brings the long-awaited comfort promised to God's people. And in verses 19 to 23, we read about Jesus' return to Nazareth as Matthew points our attention to how Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures, would be a different kind of king than most of those people were expecting. So it is covenant and comfort and kingship. You don't all start with C, but they sound the same. Covenant and comfort and kingship that are the themes, I think, to which Matthew points our attention in this text as he demonstrates that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah from Bethlehem. So we begin by considering first the flight to Egypt in verses 13 to 15. And if you have the scripture there, look at it as we read these verses again. Now, when they had departed, verse 13 begins, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the they that Matthew refers to in verse 13, right at the beginning, of course, are the Magi. You remember this from last week. Verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the wise men, the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. 
No sooner had they left than the angel of the Lord is back, guiding Joseph now in a second dream. And the point is that God takes sovereign action to preserve his Messiah, his son. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him, the angel says, using the very same word we'll find much later in the Passion narrative, where in Matthew 27, verse 20, we read that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Then it will be Jesus' time to die, but it's not now. The family must flee to protect him. And Joseph is immediately obedient, escaping by night, in fact, to depart to Egypt. Now, Egypt would have been a natural place to which to flee. The Egyptian border lay approximately 75 miles from Bethlehem. Egypt at that time, of course, was also under the control of Rome. But the point is that it was a Roman province outside of Herod's Judean jurisdiction, meaning that there the family would be safe. And they wouldn't have been alone in terms of Jewish community either. According to Philo, who wrote in the year AD 40, upwards of a million Jews had settled in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. On the Mediterranean Sea at the western edge of the Nile Delta, Egypt was a natural place for Jews to seek asylum when they were in political danger at home. And there, verse 15 says, Joseph would remain with his family until the death of Herod. Only according to Matthew, something more was going on in Jesus' journey to Egypt than simply his escape from Herod. In verse 15, Matthew quotes from the Hebrew text of Hosea 11, verse 1, when he says, this, that is Jesus' stay in Egypt and ultimately his return from Egypt following Herod's death, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But what Matthew means by that isn't immediately apparent, mainly because Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 isn't a prophetic prediction at all. It's a statement about the past. In Hosea 11 verse 1, the Lord is indeed speaking by the prophet, only what the verse says in full is, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Clearly, the reference in Hosea is to how God faithfully brought Israel, whom he calls his son, out of Egypt in the Exodus early on in their history. Which means we have to understand Matthew to see here some kind of correspondence between Israel as God's son being brought out of Egypt and Jesus as God's son being brought out of Egypt. And then more than that, we have to understand that Matthew sees Jesus in some way fulfilling, or maybe we could say in some way filling out what Israel, delivered by God in the Exodus, was meant to do or to be. This kind of thinking in which Jesus' earthly life and ministry is understood to correspond somehow 
to certain aspects of the national history of Israel, it's thinking that isn't all that uncommon in the New Testament. But the key in most places is that such recapitulation often has a twist, and that is that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. So we'll see this, for example, not long from now in Matthew 4, when Jesus' temptation after 40 days of fasting is understood as a recapitulation of the 40 years trial of Israel. Or take an example from John's gospel, if Israel is the vine that doesn't bring forth the expected fruit, as Isaiah 5 says, Jesus, by contrast, is the true vine. And it seems to me that this kind of analogical recapitulation, to use the fancy term, terms here, that that's precisely the point. That Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, with its historical statement concerning the Exodus, introduces a whole section of Hosea's prophecy in which God reflects on his experience of trying to bring up his wayward child, Israel. So that straight away in Hosea chapter 11, verse 2, the Lord says, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. In other words, even though Israel, God's son, was brought out of Egypt by God, brought out of Egypt by God to inaugurate his original covenant with them at Sinai, the people failed to keep that covenant. And though Hosea 11 verses 3 and 4 say that God healed them and led them and bent down to them and fed them, they refused to return to him. My people are bent on turning away from me, verse 7 of Hosea 11 explains. And the result will be exile. Assyria shall be their king, verse 5 says. And yet, according to Hosea 11, that's not the end. Though judgment will come, Hosea 11, verses 10 and 11, looks forward to a time when, in compassion, God himself will roar like a lion and his children will return to him. In other words, Hosea himself looks forward to a saving visitation by the Lord. The first exodus out of Egypt may have failed in the sense that the people broke the Sinai Covenant. But that failure wouldn't be the end of the story. There would be an even greater work of deliverance in the future. A new exodus of God's people, the prophets say. One author, therefore, summarizes all of it this way. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again God is bringing the Messiah who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. Out of Egypt I called my son. Only unlike Israel, this son of God would not fail. We move ahead then to the horror of verses 16 to 18 of Matthew 2, where the focus turns to the slaughter in Bethlehem. Let's begin reading in verse 16. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. Herod would have expected to hear from the Magi within a day or maybe two at the most. So when he realized somehow that they had gotten wind of his true intentions and fled, Herod decided to take the situation immediately into his own hands by putting to death any political challengers to his throne. His earlier query of the Magi about the time of the appearance of the star gave him a fairly good estimate of the birth of the child, but just to be safe, Herod ordered all the boys in, in the vicinity of Bethlehem who were born within a two-year time period to be killed. Now, estimates of the total population of Bethlehem in the first century are generally under a 1,000 meaning that the number of male children up to two years old at any one time was probably somewhere between 10 and 30. On the scale of atrocities known to have been perpetrated by Herod during his later years, that means this one would actually have registered rather low in terms of numbers. But of course, it's not the numbers that matter here. This was a heinous and horrifying act by a maniac king and it would have been a devastating loss for the people of Bethlehem. Matthew's focus is once again on the fulfillment of Scripture in the events surrounding Jesus' early months, including this dark moment. Here Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Only it's not easy, I warn you, <laughs> to see all of Matthew's connections here. To begin with, Matthew has linked Bethlehem's grief with the heartache that was experienced earlier in Israel's history at the time of the exile to Babylon. And I say that because Jeremiah 31 verse 15 refers to the deportation of Judah and Benjamin to Babylon in the years 587 to 586 B.C. The place Rama mentioned there is the place where, according to Jeremiah 40, the commander of the Babylonian king's imperial guard gathered the captives of Judah before taking them into exile in Babylon. It was at Rama. Rama was a place north of Jerusalem on the way to Bethel, but significantly, it was also in the vicinity of Rama that Rachel wife of the patriarch Jacob, had been buried long before. Now, as you probably know, Jacob is also the patriarch who was called Israel. It was Jacob's 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Rachel wasn't Jacob's only wife, but she did become the idealized mother of the Jewish people. Only to take it one step further, the reason all of this is likely picked up here in connection with Bethlehem 
is because according to Genesis 35, verse 19, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin and was buried while she was traveling with Jacob to Bethlehem. She wasn't buried in Bethlehem. But the point is that the association of Rachel's tomb with Bethlehem probably comes from that Genesis account in Genesis 35. So that through all of that complexity, Matthew here is quoting from a Jeremiah text that portrays the matriarch Rachel as one crying out from her grave because her children, her descendants of Israel, are no more. What Matthew's doing is connecting the grief now in Bethlehem with the imagined weeping of Rachel, the mother of Israel, if you will, in Jeremiah's day, over the Israelites going into exile. I told you there's a lot to try and pick apart there, but the question is why? <laughs> and here again, I think the point is that just as the Hosea passage, as in the Hosea passage we considered a minute ago, Matthew knows that Jeremiah 31 doesn't end in dreadful mourning for exiled Israel. Jeremiah 31 ends in hope. In Jeremiah 31, verse 15, that Matthew quotes, Rachel may refuse to be comforted in the moment. But the whole point of Jeremiah 31 is that God will bring comfort to his people in the future. Immediately after the verse Matthew quotes here, Jeremiah 31 verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Why? Because God will restore Rachel's children to their own land. And because ultimately the days are coming, declares the Lord in verses 31 and following of Jeremiah 31, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. As best I can understand it, in the wake of Herod's attempt here to eliminate the newborn king of the Jews by slaughtering the innocent children of Bethlehem, Matthew without denying the very real grief that such a thing would have occasioned, Matthew would have his readers remember that there was an earlier attempt by a foreign power to wipe out God's chosen people. And that just as there was hope and comfort then, so also there is now. Because now the comfort Matthew offers is in the fact, is in fact the arrival of the very thing promised to those who had been sent into exile in Jeremiah 31. Though in Bethlehem, once again, the nation of Israel experiences great suffering and anguish, the earlier promises of Jeremiah will be actualized. With God's sovereign protection of the Messiah here in Matthew 2, the comfort promised by Jeremiah has come. Matthew's point seems to me to be that the tears of the exile begun in Jeremiah's day are now being fulfilled. That is, they're filled up and they come to their end in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The loss is devastating, but the heir to David's throne has come. 
The exile is over. The true son of God has arrived. And he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Brings us then thirdly and finally to the return to Nazareth in verses 19 to 23 of Matthew 2. Again, we read it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. For the third time in two chapters, the angel of the Lord comes to direct Joseph in a dream. Herod was dead. It was time to leave Egypt and return to the land of Israel. And Matthew doesn't say it explicitly, but I think the assumption is that Joseph had every intention of returning to Bethlehem. But that all changed. When Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, because that probably wasn't what Joseph had expected. Basically, Herod the Great, who we talked about last week, made a, last, a late change to his will that divided his kingdom into three parts among three of his remaining sons. One of those three sons, Archelaus, was 19 years old when he began to reign over the areas of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. And he was known to be ruthless and cruel like his father. According to Josephus, in response to an uprising in the temple at Passover after his father's death, Archelaus set in, sent in troops and cavalry who killed about 3,000 pilgrims. He would eventually be deposed and banished by Caesar Augustus in the year A.D. 6, mainly out of Caesar's concern that his cruelty, Archelaus's cruelty, would lead to a revolution from the people. That would be in the future. We're in 4 BC here, probably. And Joseph knows he can't take Jesus back to Judea. And so God directs him again in a dream. Verse 22 says, And Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee, because Galilee wasn't under Archelaus's rule. You see, it was under Herod Antipas, another one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was only 17 years old when he became Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Herod Antipas was no saint either, but he wasn't as bad as, it, as his older brother. And so it is to Galilee that Jesus goes with his parents, and not just to Galilee, but to Nazareth of Galilee. Obscure, insignificant, despised Nazareth. Some 70 miles north of Bethlehem, that's where Jesus' family would finally settle after all the journeying of this chapter. That's where Jesus, the Messiah, would grow up. Matthew doesn't say why precisely they went to Nazareth. According to Luke, 
Nazareth was Joseph and Mary's hometown, which would explain why they chose to go there at this point, but that fact isn't mentioned by Matthew. All this means we have one more fulfillment statement to work through here at the end. Only this one you'll notice is different from the previous two. Whereas in verses 15 and 18, Matthew quotes directly from specific prophets, here he doesn't do that. In fact, it's not even one prophet Matthew has in mind. It's that which was spoken by the prophets, it says. Prophets in the plural. Only the key question is, what was that exactly that was spoken by the prophets? Because Nazareth isn't a place that even appears in the Old Testament. There's no text anywhere that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. What are we to make of this? Well, there's more than two, but I'll give you two possible interpretations, both of which seem to me to have some merit to them. First, this is probably the most popular understanding. A number of scholars and commentators suggest that the connection of Jesus being called a Nazarene is to be made with Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where the Hebrew word netzer is found. Now, some of you will know Isaiah 11, verse 1. It's a well-known messianic prophecy that reads, you know that handles Messiah, you know this text, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That word branch is the Hebrew word netzer. And the point of, of connection that's suggested is that the consonants of that Hebrew word netzer are the same as the basic consonants in netzereth, which isn't coincidental because some suggest that the town was in fact consciously given such a name in connection with that messianic prophecy when that town was, as the theory goes, originally settled by people from the line of David who had returned from the exile and intended for that town to have a connection to the hope of Isaiah 11 verse 1. Clearly, we know the concept of the messianic branch was an important designation in the Jewish literature of the time. So it's certainly possible, though I don't think it can be proved, that that's part of what's in view here. But as I see it, that cannot be the whole picture. Because Matthew says more than just that. Matthew says that what's being fulfilled here, that which was spoken by the prophets, isn't that Jesus would be from Nazareth. It's that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Any reader in the first century will get Matthew's point. That as we said at the outset this afternoon, for someone to be called a Nazarene was to ridicule or dismiss that person. What I'm suggesting is that it's not so much the word Nazarene that conveys Matthew's message here. As though Matthew's point is that the prophets foretold that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. That's not it. Nazareth didn't even exist yet. <laughs> Rather, what I'm suggesting is that Matthew's point is carried primarily here in the words, he shall be called a Nazarene. That the point of connection to the prophets is in the fact that the Messiah, the future king, would be the object of derogatory name-calling. 
a figure of ridicule, even of scorn. We've seen and talked about the royal strand of prophecy that concerns the Messiah, and obviously such expectations are part of the content of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. But in the prophets, there is a less prominent but still significant expectation of a Messiah who will be unrecognized, who would not be taken seriously by his people, who would even be despised and rejected. Think of Zechariah 9 to 14, chapters 9 to 14, which begin with the famous royal figure who's unexpectedly humble, and go on to speak of a shepherd whose authority is not accepted by his sheep, of one who's pierced by the people of Jerusalem and struck down by the sword of God. I think of Psalm 22, the psalm Jesus quotes from the cross, and Psalm 69, both of which focus on the one who will be a righteous sufferer. And of course, I think of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, which speak of the unimpressive appearance of the servant and the incredulity of the people leading to his being despised and rejected. Isaiah 53 verse 2 even says, for he grew up before him, before the Lord, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here, ultimately, is what I think Matthew would have us see, that by divine guidance and in fulfillment of the scriptures, the Messiah from Bethlehem is Jesus of Nazareth, he and his family fled with powerless humility in the night to Egypt. And his arrival in history was surrounded with grief and sorrow when the Bethlehem infant boys were slaughtered. He would not be raised in Bethlehem with its Davidic overtones, but rather in the even more obscure, despised town of Nazareth. So that even as Jesus' earliest years point to the dawning of the new covenant and bring the comfort long promised to God's people, Matthew's ultimate point seems to be that this would be no ordinary king, brothers and sisters. The one named Jesus who will save his people from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us, who's hailed as king of the Jews, is also the one called a Nazarene. As one commentator puts it, Jesus was a branch from a royal line hacked down to a stump and reared in surroundings guaranteed to win him scorn. His relationship to Nazareth means he came to be identified not with the center of the religious and political establishment, but rather he fulfilled the prophecy of a messianic figure who came from the common people, who was a man of sorrows, who was often despised, but who was ultimately the messianic servant to justify the many and carry their iniquities. That same author then concludes with this challenge. Although Jesus's messianic sacrifice is unique, we are nonetheless provided in the accounts of his incarnation, meaning the whole narrative of the start of Matthew, 
We are nonetheless provided an example of humility and servanthood that will challenge our own self-serving desires for comfort, fame, fortune, and glory. Challenge indeed. May we, who call ourselves Christians, be mindful that we bear the name Jesus of Nazareth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.